0: Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. Please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 2. As John shares his message, the forgotten part of the Christmas story. The 12 days of Christmas lead up to January the 6th, which is the day of Epiphany. By the way, when we hear that phrase, the 12 days of Christmas, what do we think of? We think of a song, right? We think of the longest song that's ever been written because it takes forever. This year at our Christmas celebration with our family, my parents had taught that song to my niece and nephew. And they had been working on that song for weeks. And that was their surprise to the rest of us that the four of them were going to sing The Twelve Days of Christmas. And they did. And three hours later, we all woke up and clapped for them when that song was over. Now, if you study the background to that song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, there's different theories as to what led to the writing of that song. I think the strongest theory, and I think what really happened was, in the late 1700s, Christians were being persecuted for their faith in Christ, and they knew that if they spoke openly and declared their faith in Christ, that many would persecute them, and so one year at Christmas, some Christians got together, and they wrote this song, and the 12 days of Christmas is kind of like the gospel presentation, or it's kind of like our faith in God in the Bible in code, and, and, and so they felt like they could sing this song, and they could encourage each other, And also by singing this song, they could help other people who didn't know Christ to learn more about him just by the gifts and the symbolism of that song. Now, the last thing I'm going to do today is to take three hours and work through that whole song. But let's just start on the 12th day and let's just work all the way down. And by the way, from now on, when people sing that song, that's how they should do it. Just start with day 12 and go down to day one instead of repeating it all the way. But what does it say? On the 12th day of Christmas, my true love gave to me 12 drummers drumming. What does that symbolize? The 12 doctrines in the Apostles' Creed. 11 pipers piping, the 11 faithful disciples. 10 lords a-leaping, the Ten Commandments. 9 ladies dancing, what is that? The nine fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Eight maids of milking, the eight beatitudes that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Seven lords of leaping, the seven gifts of the Spirit. We read about in Isaiah chapter 11. Six geese laying the six days of creation, which formed the foundation of the world as we know it today. Five golden rings, the first five books in the Bible. The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, four calling birds. What does that represent? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel writers who were calling on people to repent of their sins and trust Christ. Three French hens, faith, hope, love. Two turtle doves, Old Testament and a New Testament, and a partridge in a pear tree, Jesus dying on that tree to pay for our sins. And so the 12 days of Christ, the song itself communicates a great deal about God, about Jesus, about the Bible, and about the new birth. So I'm saying that to say the 12 days of Christmas, maybe not in a Protestant world like we're in, or at least not in a Baptist world. Some Protestant denominations would celebrate the 12 days of Christmas. Catholics certainly would. Lutherans would. Episcopalians would. The more liturgical churches would say, listen, this whole idea about the wise men coming to worship Jesus after his birth, at some point after his birth, is so significant that we need to set aside 12 days of Christmas leading up to that, celebrating that. And on the 13th day, January the 6th, it is the day of epiphany. It is the day when Jesus Christ was revealed to the Gentiles. These men came from the east. They weren't Jewish people. They were Gentiles. And as they bowed down there at the feet of Jesus and brought him those gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What was gold? Gold was a gift that you would take to a king. What was frankincense? Frankincense was a type of incense that the priest burned and offered in the temple in their worship of God. What was the myrrh? It was an anointing oil that was used to anoint dead bodies. And so as those wise men travel that great distance and they're giving these gifts to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, what were they saying? They were saying, here lies this special baby who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is the priest connecting us between ourselves and God and who is the Savior of the world, who will one day suffer for our sins. You say, do you believe those wise men understood all that? No, I don't. I don't believe they understood all that. But they weren't saved by how much they understood. They were saved by placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the history of the church, the theologians, the pastors, the leaders have said this experience with the wise men is so significant that we need to have a day, January the 6th, where we celebrate the day of epiphany when Jesus revealed himself, when he was manifested to the non-Jewish world. He came into a Jewish world, born of Jewish parents, but he came to save All who would believe in him. Now, think of it this way December the 25th is the day we celebrate the birth of Jesus, January the 6th is the day we celebrate the rebirth of the wise men. They were saved by placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So that this day of epiphany is a big deal. And so for the last several years in my own heart, I have celebrated the day of epiphany. I have been mindful of what happened on that day. We are mindful that not only was Jesus born in Bethlehem, but if we have placed our faith and trust in him, that we have been born again. Everybody needs a January the 6th. Now, it may not be that day when you were saved. may not be that day when you were born again. But you need a day in your life when you knelt at the feet of Jesus, acknowledging him as king, priest, and savior, and placed your faith and trust in him. Now, that said, open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 2. And I've called the sermon this morning the forgotten part of the Christmas story because it is. We're good in December to preach about the angel Gabriel and the announcement and all that went on leading up to the birth of Jesus. Even we're preaching about how he was born. But in Matthew chapter 2, we read about an experience somehow surrounding the birth of Jesus, whether it was 12 days later or two years later. Jesus was very young. And I want us to read, and as we walk through this today, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about and to reflect upon your salvation experience. For many here today, you got saved 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 years ago. But however long ago it's been, as we see the salvation experience of the wise men, I want you to think about your own salvation experience, and let's see if we can draw some parallels there. First of all, as we think about our own salvation experience, we remember how we were led by God. We were led by God. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, we see how these wise men were led by God. But after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him." And so God led these wise men from wherever it was they lived in the east all the way to Bethlehem, but how did he lead them there? By a star. It says to me that God is always the one who takes the initiative in our salvation. In John chapter 6, in verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's why when I stand up here on Sundays and preach or when my dad stands up here and preaches, we're preaching the gospel, we're preaching the Bible, we're lifting up Jesus, but we're not standing up here alone. We're not working without help. I know full well that right now as I'm beginning this sermon that the Holy Spirit of God in this room and to those listening at home, the Holy Spirit is beginning the process of drawing people and leading people who do not know Christ to the feet of Jesus so that they can be saved. And he has lots of different ways of leading us. Here, he led the wise men by a star, a special star. We don't know the exact type of star, but some type of star. And they followed that star, and that star led them to the feet of Jesus. As I think about my own salvation experience, and when I came to the full assurance of my salvation, you know, I think about how God led me. He didn't lead me with a a star up in the sky, but you know what he led me with? He led me with some stars. Some stars in my life, and he did the same with you. People in my life who are my stars. I've been I, I thinking about this for the last few days. I think certainly about my parents and how, when I was very young, uh, my parents. Teaching me about God. As I got older, I think about Sunday school teachers who led me when I was super young, teaching me about the Bible. And I think about when I grow up, and I have a list of names. And I thought about calling all these names. I thought, well, those names won't mean anything to people. You don't know. You don't know these people. But in my life, they were the stars who were doing what, who were leading me to trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. And so, as we think about our own salvation experience, we must remember how God, yes, by His Word, yes, by His Spirit, but also by the stars in our lives, the youth ministers we had, the children's ministers we had, the Sunday school teachers when we were young, maybe the grandparents, the aunts, and the uncles, the people who had an impact on our life who led us to Jesus. God led these by a star, and God has led us by the stars in our lives, those who have taught us about Jesus. But the second thing we remember today, not only how we were led by God, we remember how we were opposed by the devil. Let me say this, Satan hates Jesus. And Satan, all the way through the Bible, and even up until modern times, not only hates and opposes Jesus, Satan opposes anybody who's trying to get to Jesus. And after we've gotten to Jesus, and after we've been saved, and after we try to lead others to Jesus, Satan opposes that. Now, beginning in verse number three, we find the first little a, Antichrist, in all of the New Testament. You know there's only one antichrist and he'll be revealed during the great tribulation but the bible says even now there are many antichrist the spirit of antichrist is all over the world today and it's growing stronger and in verse number three we read about a man named herod the king of the jews who was the first antichrist in the new testament when herod the king heard this he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. In other words, when he heard that these wise men had come to worship Jesus, the King of the Jews, it troubled him. It made him angry. Why? Because Herod was the King of the Jews, and he was threatened by Jesus. And he thought, well, if others begin to recognize him as the King of the Jews, then they won't recognize me as the King of the Jews. And so Herod said, somehow I've got to do away with Jesus. Verse 4, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and he's quoting here from Micah chapter 5, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem and said, here's what he said to the wise men, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And so Herod, we know because we read the passage. He was troubled. He didn't, the idea of another king, that was a threat to him. But he says to the wise men, he said, what I want you to do, go to Bethlehem and then come back and tell me where this baby is so that I too can go and worship him. And the wise men might've thought, well, how nice of Herod, how gracious of him. He's going to do the same thing we're going to do. He's going to go worship Jesus. And yet, Herod's words did not reflect Herod's heart. His words were deceptive. He had no intention of worshiping Jesus. He had only the intention of destroying and killing Jesus, which later in this chapter we read that he had all the baby boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, destroyed, thinking if he killed them all, certainly certainly that would include Jesus himself. Now, as we think about the different ways in today's world that The devil opposes those who are seeking God, who are seeking to come to Jesus. In other words, God is convicting people by his spirit. God is revealing people's sins. God is revealing their need for Christ. And yet Satan doesn't just sit idly by and say, okay, all y'all go to Jesus and get saved. No, the the devil does everything he can to oppose the work of God. There's not a bigger football fan in in the world than I am. I I love football. I played it in high school. I would have played it in college and even professionally if only I had been bigger, better, faster, and stronger. Those are the only things. If I with the exception of that, I know I could have made it. Football is neither good nor bad. It's it's neutral in as far as spiritual things are concerned. One of the ways I'm convinced that Satan, in in our day today, one of the ways that Satan opposes the preaching of the gospel. And the lifting up of Jesus is through Sunday afternoon NFL football. You remember the story Jesus told in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower? The sower went out to sow seed. The seed's the word of God, and he sowed it. And the first place he sowed that seed was on the pathway, the hard ground. And Jesus said, before that seed could ever take root, the birds of the air came, and they picked that seed up out of the ground, and it never did take root. And I think in our country on a typical Sunday, I mean, forever now, for over 50 years now, people have gone to church and people have heard the gospel and Jesus has been lifted up and sin has been exposed and revealed and Christ has been exalted and the Holy Spirit has convicted people and people, many have gotten saved and others have said, this is new to me. I didn't know this. And they've walked out the doors and they have thought, that's a decision I need to make. I need Christ. I need, I need to think about this. And so they leave the church, and they get in their car, and they drive home, and they're thinking about the things of God. And then they turn the television on, and for the rest of the day, they're thinking about the NFL. And what is it? Am I saying the NFL is bad? No, it's neutral. I'm saying the devil uses that so that the seed that has been planted never can take root. What I'm saying to you today, and I could give a lot of examples, whether it's that, whether it's pride, whether it's a lot of other things, the devil will do anything he can to prevent someone from coming to Jesus Christ and being saved. And one of the things he does today is the same thing he did here. He uses a deceptive form of spirituality. And today, this is prevalent in our culture, a deceptive form of spirituality. Look again in verse 8. This is what Herod had. Herod said, go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. In other words, Herod Herod was saying all the right things. It sounded good. It sounded genuine. It sounded spiritual. And that's what our culture is experiencing today, a form of spirituality without Jesus, religion without God. Listen to what I read last week. 63% of adults in America, 63%, 6 out of 10, believe, and here's the quote, having faith matters more than which faith you have. Now, think about that. Having faith is more important than which faith this is why many times in our culture today, you'll hear a celebrity or a politician or an athlete, and they'll say something like this, well, when I'm going through hard times, I just lean on my faith. My faith is very important to me. Well, that's, what does this even mean? I mean, if a Christian says that, we're talking about our faith in Christ. If a Muslim says that, they're talking about their faith in Allah. If a Buddhist says that, they're talking about a totally different thing. But the idea that is now permeated not only European culture but American culture is what we need is faith. Friend, let me tell you something. I do not lean on my faith. I lean on Jesus, the object of my faith. Faith is only as good as its object. This platform, I'm standing on it, why? Because it's a strong object. That pew you're sitting in, why did you sit down? It's a reliable pew. It is not our faith that saves. It is the object of our faith that saves. Yet in our culture today, the idea is just faith. Have faith, have faith. It's vague. Nobody even knows what they're talking about. This was a more concerning statistic. 60% of people in America who claim to be born-again Christians... Let's let that sink in. 60% of people who claim to be born-again Christians believe that Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus are all valid ways to God. That's 60% of people who say they've been born again and that they're Christians, and yet they say, yeah, we're Christians. We believe for us it's Jesus, but you could be Muslim, you could be Buddhist, or you could be anything else as long as you have faith. This is what is happening in our culture. It's what began happening in Europe 150 years ago when liberalism took over the universities. Then it infiltrated the churches. And instead of a person standing up and doing what I'm doing today with a Bible in their hand, preaching the Word of God, lifting up the Son of God, Jesus Christ, which was, had happened for hundreds of years... And, and, and revivals took place and awakenings took place in the late 1800s. In the early 1900s, that began to stop. And people, instead of preaching the Bible, began questioning the Bible and doubting the Bible. And instead of preaching Jesus as the only way to God, began to preach there multiple ways to God. And I read a statistic last week. A friend sent me this article that recently in, in Europe, over 400 churches have completely shut down over 400 churches shut down. Why? Because they weren't preaching the gospel because there was this unclear, deceptive form of spirituality that did not have the blessing of God on it and it didn't accomplish anything. One of the greatest quotes I've ever read. I want to read this slowly to you. William Booth, who was a Methodist preacher, he and his wife became the founders of the Salvation Army and we have a Salvation Army in Pasadena. Our church supports that ministry every month. William Booth was a godly man. He loved the Lord. He died in the year 1912, so he's been gone just over 100 years, and I say that because when I read this quote, he refers to the the next century. As As he, back then, looked into the future, and he was talking about uh, what would confront Christians and the world in the coming century. Here's what he said. I consider that the greatest dangers which confront the coming century, now listen to this and see if this doesn't describe the world and even America today, will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation Without regeneration, politics without God, heaven without hell. Isn't that what we're living in today? We're living in a day that talks a lot about religion and faith and spirituality, but they're not talking about the Holy Ghost. A lot of talking about forgiveness, but they're not talking about repentance that leads to forgiveness. They're talking about some form of some form of Christianity, these churches in Europe, but there's no Christ being preached in that. Much talk about heaven, very little talk today about hell, and what William Booth said in 1912 or thereabouts has become reality in the day in which we live. Why has this happened? Because Jesus Christ is not being presented as the clear and as the only way to God. And I'm saying to you today, as we reflect on our own salvation, yes, we reflect on how God led us. To Jesus we also reflect on the different ways that the devil tried to oppose us and maybe some today who are unsaved listen to this message and the devil in your heart today is opposing your coming to Jesus Christ and being saved maybe with pride or some other way but I'll tell you something else we remember we remember as we think about that day of epiphany You've heard that word epiphany. I have an epiphany. It's like a manifestation, a revelation of truth. Well, that's what the the wise men had at the feet of Jesus. We remember how we were saved at the feet of Jesus Christ. And that's what happened to these wise men when they brought this gold, frankincense and myrrh. They they didn't understand everything fully, but with all the faith and understanding they had, they chose to acknowledge and to worship Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I'm going to ask you this question today. We're talking about Remembering the day of our rebirth. Do you remember a time in your life when you, like the wise men, came to Jesus and where you knelt down, whether you physically knelt down or in your heart you knelt down, and you said to Jesus Christ, God, I'm a sinner. I have messed up. I have fallen short. And I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins and to come into my heart and to make me a Christian. Do you remember a day when you've done that? And if you haven't done that, let me ask you this question. What tool is it that the devil is using to keep you from doing that? Would you like to take this opportunity to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Please pray with me now. Dear Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I ask you to come into my heart forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me and I trust you to do it. If you just pray to receive Christ as your Savior today, please let us know by sending an email to info at peacebybelieving.org. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.